Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, October 10th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, police in the capital city agreed to scale back roadblocks following a lawsuit settlement. Then advocates are looking at what it will take to make a guaranteed income permanent, plus a conversation with the League of Women Voters on the last day of registration. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A community-led class action lawsuit over Jackson's roadblock policy has been settled. This comes in response to a lawsuit that said Jackson officers were violating people's constitutional right to be free of unreasonable search and seizure. The Mississippi Center for Justice and MacArthur Justice Center accused the police department of using roadblocks in majority black and low-income neighborhoods to try to catch violent suspects. Attorneys representing the to say they have worked with the police department to overhaul the ticket arrest and tow policy. Paloma Wu is an attorney with Mississippi Center for Justice, and she tells our Lacey Alexander, while they didn't achieve their goal of getting rid of the checkpoints altogether, there is change that could limit harm. I think the most important um, are the uh, requirements that towing rates be capped, that people have the opportunity to call someone, to not have their car towed, because that's the day-to-day, it can snowball your life type of um, harm prevention that's in in the settlement that we're really proud of. Also, limitations on when arrests can be made versus just citations. Um, so no arrests can be made for not having insurance. Um, also, the information um, that we now require that people get, like how to get their car back. These are all from complaints that we got about people not knowing where to get their car, having exorbitant, being charged exorbitant amounts. Um, those types of things shouldn't be issues anymore. But, you know, the core issue for us is these roadblocks shouldn't exist. They don't do anything good and they hurt people. Um, but as long as they're around, these are going these are going to be things that actually protect people from hopefully it, creating so much harm in their life that they can't get back from it. Because sometimes people can't get back from being on their way to work and then all of a sudden being arrested, having their car towed and having no way to get their kids to school or get to work the next morning. So we're, we're really trying to do some harm reduction. And we did. We, we, have, we have accomplished that. But our main goals 
and, and desires the city not do these roadblocks at all. Obviously, we didn't get quite that far in the lawsuit, but we got a lot of different and more requirements for these roadblocks. Do you see these requirements forcing the JPD to lessen the frequency of these roadblocks? That's a great question. Um, it is our hope that with the data provision requirement, for every quarter for the next four years, JPD has to give us a document that records for every single roadblock why they had it up, what are the arrests they did, any searches they did, any um, citations that they gave. And what we're hoping is it will show that the amount of resources that go into this draconian, harsh hunting down and punishing people for minor traffic-related offenses is not actually keeping people any safe, keeping people safe. And what people want when we talk to people in Jackson, and I live in Jackson, has to do with safety and crime and um roadblocks do not address, you know, violent crime at all. And actually good data from many long-term studies and other places shows that this kind of harsh misdemeanor enforcement of tiny crimes um, makes people less safe in the long run. A little off topic of what we talked about today. In your data, what precautions are better to attack crime in cities? So when we talk to people and ask them, what would you like police to be doing? The number one thing is support community-led violence prevention initiatives, support reentry programs for people who are um, leaving the carceral setting, um, support family um, programs that help kids after school, those kinds of things that people think actually could prevent violence in their neighborhood. Um, also, one of the biggest things people said is when I call the police even in the context of violent crimes, they don't come for a really long time. People want police doing more things like investigation, um, interviewing people, uh, crime solving, um, as opposed to the more visible roadblock policing work that doesn't actually solve crimes, address crime, or prevent crime. One last question for you. What's the next step in this conversation? Do you see another suit a few years down the road? Are you working with JBT to make these laws better? So we are going to continue to work with the city of Jackson. They were they were partners. They had integrity. They came to the table. We wrestled down every single point in this lawsuit. I think that we will continue to work with them to make this agreement work. But in the meantime, the hard work of how can we police in Jackson in a way that will meet people's public safety needs and not make people less safe? Those are community-led efforts that we are there to support. It, like Everything that's meaningful is, comes from the community. We are there to support it. Um, but truly, um, like violence intervention, actually um, programs that um, support the community in supporting um, themselves the way they want to be supported. I mean, those are the kinds of things that we think are coming up next. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know that maybe I forgot to ask you today? Just that we appreciate the opportunity to talk about policing in the context of what makes people safer as opposed to what makes people feel safe and the importance of data-driven um, policing in order to address violent crime as opposed to punish poverty. Paloma Wu is an attorney with the Mississippi Center for Justice. Archie Skiffer Jr. was one of the plaintiffs in the case. He shared his story during a press conference announcing the details of the settlement. This is a victory for me as um, an individual who moonlights at night as a delivery driver, um, not having to use various um, apps in order to circumvent roadblocks, um, be it Facebook roadblock groups, um, 
my checkpoint, um, even ways, um, it's a hindrance, uh, first and foremost. So I give thanks knowing that I at least have that sense of relief, knowing that I can do my job without having that hassle. Um, but most importantly, um, I just want to speak about two stories that I encountered. One, which um, brought the TAD initiative to my attention, was um, a single mother of four who was relying on DoorDash um, because her she, she didn't have um, a life insurance, forgive me. And she's spending this exorbitant amount of money um, on delivery services just to avoid a ticket. Um, this young mother of four was over in Forest Park, and that right there just incensed me. Um, and secondly, during our canvassing efforts in South Jackson, learning about a mother of three who had her vehicle towed um, and was forced to walk home with her children um, in the rain, that further incensed me. So nonetheless, I celebrate this victory um, with those two individuals and their households, and hopefully this will reduce further harm, although the harm has already been caused to those two households. But nonetheless, going forward, we have instruments in place that can hold uh, JPD accountable moving forward. The settlement says Jackson police can conduct safety checkpoints only for constitutionally acceptable purposes and with a minimal amount of intrusion or motorist inconvenience. Coming up, advocates are looking at how to make a guaranteed income permanent. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Guaranteed income is the idea. Regular cash payments are the best way to help Americans in need. And right now, the concept's getting a test run in dozens of cities across the country. The movement comes has come a long way since the first city-led pilot was announced five years ago. Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom spoke with attendees at a recent Guaranteed Income Conference in Atlanta about what's changed. The big difference between 2017 and today, there are actual people here who've received those guaranteed income checks. People like Tomas Vargas Jr. He's kind of a celebrity in this crowd full of policy walks. Like earlier, a lady told me, oh, I speak about you all the time. And I was like, and she was like, it's good to finally first meet you. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I was like, okay. Back in 2019, Vargas received $500 a month from that first pilot in Stockton, California. Before that, Vargas says he was struggling. I was uh, down on my luck. I was always hustling, trying to make a dollar. Uh, I know what it's like to sit there and grow up without lights and water or even the meal. I remember going to school and having uh, that be my dinner, lunch, and breakfast. He says the cash helped clear his debt and made him more confident. Mayors, their staff, and researchers gathered in the downtown Atlanta conference hall to hear stories from people like Vargas. A big thing that makes guaranteed income such a unique policy is that it's meant to solve not one specific problem, but lots of them from helping people just out of prison to shrinking the racial wealth gap. 
New Orleans hopes it'll help younger residents like Vernell Chanu get a better start on their adult lives. It began to make me uh, think of money as a tool rather than just a resource. And I actually started my own LLC off of the money that I received from the university. While San Francisco is giving $1,000 a month to provide economic security for artists like poet Kevin Dublin. I've been able to afford having my son live with me full time. I've traveled to visit family. I've traced genealogy. I made a lot of choices. Beyond the people who actually got a guaranteed income, another big celebrity for this crowd wasn't a person, but a policy. So we've been talking a lot all day about the child tax credit. Now the child tax credit. Child tax credit. Child tax credit. Child tax credit. The child tax credit is the policy darling of the guaranteed income movement. The credit helped cut the child poverty rate nearly in half last year by giving families a few hundred dollars per child each month. Kind of like a guaranteed income. Advocates here hold it up as proof a federal guaranteed income can work. And that's the dream, a federal guaranteed income. Michael Tubbs co-founded Mayors for a Guaranteed Income, which has been funding a lot of these city pilots. What's exciting about the federal government is that it can deficit spend. Basically, the federal government can spend money it doesn't have. As mayors and county officials, we have to balance our budgets, which is why we have to do pilots, which is why we have to target. The federal government is able to invest. But just because the feds can spend freely doesn't mean they could do it without consequences. Some economists are now blaming government spending, like that celebrated child tax credit, for causing the record high inflation. Suki Samra is the director of Mayors for a Guaranteed Income. She expects that inflation criticism is something the guaranteed income movement will have to face. But she says it's unfair to point the finger at the child tax credit when lots of factors led to inflation. It's really easy to place blame on the thing that is helping the Americans that don't typically get help. Um, When we see the stimulus checks, when we see a child tax credit, we see it overwhelmingly helping black and brown families. So it's no surprise that the discourse around it is also to attack that very tool. Civil rights has also taken center stage in the guaranteed income push, which leads us to the biggest celebrity of the event. Martin Luther King Jr.'s youngest daughter, Bernice King. During the event's keynote, she said a guaranteed income was one of the last things her father pushed for before his assassination. I appreciate that you all started this, but we've got to get it codified in federal law. When Daddy spoke about it, he was talking about not something temporary. He was talking about something permanent. That is way more likely to happen if Democrats stay in control of Congress. And if they don't, guaranteed income advocates have a backup plan trying it state by state, something they see as potentially their best bet for getting more cash directly into people's pockets soon. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha in Atlanta. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public media stations in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Coming up, a conversation with the League of Women Voters on the last day of registration. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Today is the final day to register to vote in the general election. 
Applications can be submitted to the circuit clerk's office or be postmarked today in order to participate in November. The lead-up to this year's registration deadline has been highlighted by efforts to reach new voters. Peg Seraldo is with the Mississippi chapter of the League of Women Voters, and she shares more with our Michael Guidry. There has been a tremendous push to register voters. Uh, the League of Women Voters and other organizations are going to, on a weekly basis, going to farmers markets, going to community colleges, high schools, colleges, uh, events to register voters. And in response to that, the community, especially the academic students, have been ferocious in wanting to register to vote. They, uh, when we conduct a voter registration at a school, the students themselves are the ones who are saying to the other students, come on over here and register to vote. People are, I, I've been with the league for, <laughs> hate to admit it, for over 40 years, and I have never seen such enthusiasm among the young people to register to vote. Are you hearing anything from them um, during those registration efforts about what is compelling them to, to, you know, so sometimes it's hard to get young voters on board. What are you hearing from younger voters as, as, as you engage with them in these registration efforts? The, that's a really good question. And what I hear from them is that they feel that our country is not in a very good spot right now. They don't, they're not specific about what areas that they're concerned about. But they do state they do not feel this country is in a good spot right now. They do not feel that their voice is being heard. When we have a voter registration, they'll stand around afterwards just to talk, to engage in conversation about uh, where to go vote. They talk about the, uh, where there's the, – one of the things they talk about is where they can go vote, how where the, the polling place is not uh, easy access or it's easy access. They're, they're concerned about that. They're concerned about people getting out to vote. We, I would say when we go to the schools, we register at least over 50 students at a time. And it's very impressive. And people are very, the students are very, I think if they register to vote and vote, they're going to be able to change this country. Uh, the last uh, federal election in 2020, uh, some provisions were made, um, especially regarding absentee voting, uh, to uh, you know account for some of the concerns with with COVID nineteen. Those weren't permanent changes. So, for someone who voted in twenty twenty and is voting, plan on voting again in in, in twenty twenty two, what options are available? Obviously, there's day of walk up voting, but in, in terms of absentee voting, uh, what's different between now and the the special provisions they made in twenty twenty? There, there are changes that have been made, and everyone who wants to vote absentee ballot needs to go to the Secretary of State online or, this, or, or to their circuit court and ask, because <clears throat> you have to show proof that you're going to be out of town, and there's a reason for it. There's an age limit of if you, how to vote absentee, but what I strongly advise everyone, if you want to vote absentee, don't take a chance. You need to find out the exact reasons from your circuit court or from the Secretary of State. Does the League of Women Voters have a position when it comes to um, voting accessibility, uh, things like no excuse absentee voting or early voting? 
they they do have a position on it. And right now what we're doing here in the state of Mississippi is we have developed four priorities of what we're focusing on to educate ourselves and the public. And one of them is voting rights and the issue of absentee ballots and, and the issue of polling places and the issue of any other voting uh, things we have to have before you can vote. All of these are being studied. We're going to be having public forums on them. We're going to be having debates on them. And we're going to be educating the public on them so that when we talk to our legislators, we can improve the situation in Mississippi. You're a nonpartisan group. Um, you want you said part of what you do is inform people about the issues. How do you do that? I mean, what is your outreach when it comes to making sure voters are at least informed when they step up to the polls? We are a nonpartisan organization, which means that we do not support any candidate. We do support issues, but we are nonpartisan because we do not support candidates. We do not support a political party. That's the first thing. And then to the issue of what are we doing to uh, educate the public, what we're doing is we contact uh, uh, professors, we contact people who are uh, educated on the issues to come to talk to uh, our, our groups. We have joined with the League of Women Voters, in Mississippi has joined with the NAACP, uh, Mississippi Move, different partners, and then we all together will have a public forum where speakers will come and speak on the issues. And they will speak on both sides of the issues many times because we want to get fully educated on the position. And then when we, so that before the person goes to vote on that issue, they will be educated. But more importantly, what we do is we educate the public, and then with that information, the public and ourselves, the league and our partners, can contact our legislators. Our legislators are the ones who are doing uh, passing the bills, uh, and we contact them, we set up meetings with them, and we work with them and educate them on what, how, what we think is an appropriate way to vote on a position. You know, Michael, the important thing about this registering to vote and getting out to to vote, the important thing is that if we don't vote, if I don't vote, if you don't vote, if everyone doesn't, if people don't vote, if people haven't voted, we wouldn't have any laws. We just would be come to this country without any help. If we don't, if we didn't vote, we wouldn't have any rights. The only reason you and I have any, or anyone has any rights in this country is because people voted. And it's, it's what our country is, what our daily existence is based on, is people going out to vote. And I appreciate everyone who, doesn't, who does do that. Peg Sereldo with the Mississippi League of Women Voters, thank you so much for taking some time uh, to talk to us about voting registration uh, and in keeping the electorate informed on, on the issues. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. And again, please, today is the last day to register to vote for the general election in November, so go and take care of that. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio.